All right, well, it's been three weeks since we last met together in the book of Acts. So I'm going to ask you to join me in the book of Acts. Look, that's not going to get old for another 20-something chapters, all right? (laughs) Acts chapter 4 tonight, as we continue considering what it means to be a church in action. This chapter is a continuation of the events which have taken place in chapter 3. Remember, there was a crippled beggar that was at the beautiful gate at the temple daily, and Peter and John, this particular day, walk up, fasten their eyes on him. Long story short, the man is healed. He gets up, never walked a day in his life, and he's walking and leaping and praising God, all because of faith in Christ and God's power to heal. Amen? Upon uh, being healed and this event taking place, people are noticing and they press against this man at Solomon's porch. And it's quite a stir. And multitudes of people, thousands of people, are, are trying to see this. And Peter, he takes advantage of the situation and he preaches Christ. That's a good place to start, amen? amen. And so he, he uses this to preach Christ and His resurrection. Well, that enraged the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't want somebody at the temple teaching the resurrection. So they come rushing in. They arrest Peter and John. And then they put them in prison overnight. But though they were silenced, the Word of God was not stopped because God's Word cannot be bound. And thousands were saved that evening. On the next day, Peter and John, they're brought before the the council, a very powerful group of men, the highest authority in Israel outside of the Romans. And the council took note of their boldness. Peter and John preached to them the same message they were arrested for. All right, well, that spoke to me, man. Uh, Hey, they got arrested. They're still preaching the same thing. And, And then the council, they take note that these were unlearned and ignorant men, but that they had been with Jesus. Well, the council couldn't deny the miracle. They couldn't say anything against it. The man was above 40 years old. It's obvious. It's, there's no denying this. All of the city is talking about this. All of Jerusalem was glorifying God. So the council decides, you know what, we'll just threaten them. You can't speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. To which Peter and John replied, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Upon hearing that, the council uh, further threatens them. No, 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 I really mean it. Don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Well, they let them go. They found nothing for which they could punish them for. When Peter and John were let go, we saw they returned to their own company. We considered, where do we go when the pressures mount? Do you run to the body of believers? Or do you run away? One thing's for sure you're going to go unto your own company. Birds of a feather flock together. I hope for you, you're making your way among God's people. And of course, the Word of God and God Himself. Last time we saw how this church was once again said to be of one accord, we talked about how if this body of believers, Liberty Baptist, wants to be effective, then we must be of one accord centered around Christ. Now, it took six weeks to cover all that I just said. So if you missed it, please go back and listen. You can get all the details and the points and actually, you know, 
figure out that I do study. All right. Let's begin tonight in Acts chapter 4. Let's read verses 23 through 31. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of Thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, which, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Amen. We pick this account back up in verse 24 where we see they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Just a quick observation here. But when we read how this church lifted up their voice to God, it's likely only one was praying, but all were in agreement with what that one was praying. They were in one accord in their heart of what was being said. As I was preparing for this, I was remembering, you know, have you ever been in a church service where everybody prays out loud at one time? And, and it's not like we're all saying the same things, but everybody's just like, you know, Hey, bless the Super Bowl. Hey, bless this food. Hey, bless. And it's just, it's weird. I've I've been there in a couple of churches visiting, and I'm not saying people are wrong for doing it. It was just, it was just kind of awkward to me. I I don't know if it violates let all things be done decently in order or not. It's just weird. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. Notice how a church in action, get this now, they are not driven apart by persecution and threatenings of the council. This isn't causing them to give up, but they are actually drawn closer together as a body of believers. And so we find another great byproduct of persecution, which we have been highlighting as we go through this chapter, is that in times of persecution, it actually brings God's people closer together. And, and at least in a church that's you know, doing right, right? And, and so we see here that being of one accord as a church body, it includes being of one mind and one purpose in our prayers. And we see here that a church in action has a church meeting. <laughs> a church meeting. A church in action has a prayer meeting. That sounded a lot better, Amen. According to a LifeWay survey conducted in 2019, Baptists are by far the most likely group at 74% to reserve Wednesday night for a prayer meeting. That's great. But how sad is it that even for us, it's our lowest attended service. So how can we say our church is in one accord when it comes to prayer if people don't even care enough to be here? 
This year, our church is seeing a 61% rate of return of our Sunday morning attendance back for Wednesday night. And that's actually pretty good. I'm very thankful for that. But Paul warned us, we're not wise to measure and compare ourselves. So I just want to address our church. Why are we missing 39% of our Sunday morning congregation on Wednesday night? Some of it's easy to understand, especially in the summer we see all kind of tourists and they're probably not going to be here during midweek or, or you know how it is. Um, that may be a small percentage. Another percentage are elderly in the winter who can't drive at night. We certainly understand that. Some are sick, and I'm glad you're not bringing it here. Some have to work, and that makes sense. I've been there. But I think you would agree that all those categories don't make up the entire 39% that are not here. The fact is, a good chunk of that 39% are those who are simply not making our prayer meetings a priority. It's okay, loosen up, you're here. It's okay, we're all friends. Now, there are many factors which can indicate the health of a church body. Certainly, the midweek prayer meeting is, is one of those. I remember my dad telling me, look at a church's Wednesday night return to see how they are really doing. It's been said that if you attend Sunday mornings, you love the preacher. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you attend Sunday night, you love the church. If you attend Wednesday nights, you love the Lord. Now, I don't know that I would hang my hat on that or take that to the bank, but it's something to chew on. Because I think the intent of that statement is to, is to suggest that those who are all in for God are not going to allow the world to crowd God out and church out, and they're going to make that a priority. And I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody, so don't show up Wednesday night and say, man, you made me feel so bad I showed up Wednesday night. Um, that's not my intent. Um, because if you do it for man, it's never going to last. But I am trying to communicate the importance of the church body praying together in one accord. From the accounts that I've read on revival, it started as a result of the church being of one accord in prayer. Especially among the elderly. And a lot of our elderly sometimes will say, well, I can't do it. I used to. You can pray. You can pray. And I think our, our Wednesday night prayer meeting is really our most important time. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Now, I'm not going to preach this point any further, aren't you glad? But I want to encourage you to be here for our prayer meeting if you can make it. And for those of you who are here on Wednesday nights and you're feeling kind of, yeah, well, preacher, you know I'm here every Wednesday night. Um, can I encourage you to pray the entire time that we allot? We almost always break for prayer at 720. I always try to make sure that's the case, sometimes a little bit earlier. And then the piano starts at 7.45. That's a, that's a five-minute warning until we go live and, and go to our Bible study, I should say. That sounds a little better. And so we're talking 25 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to pray on Wednesday night. Is it really that difficult? Because if you're like me praying and you hear everybody getting up and walking and talking and chattering, going out in the foyer and having a great time, we're not praying that whole time. And I'm not saying you've, you've got to, you know, pray in the King James language and all that. Um, 
But we give you a prayer sheet front and back worth of stuff to pray about. Anyway, if you break into small groups of two to three people, which most do, if you take the entire 25 minutes, then that's only 8.3 to 12.5 minutes per person. And if you take all 30 minutes, then that's only 10 to 15 minutes per person. I don't think that should be that difficult. So all I'm trying to do is encourage you, challenge you to increase your prayer life. Amen? That's it. Now we're all friends. We can get back to the message. Now let's keep in mind in our text that Peter and John have just spent a night in jail. And it's not like jails today. I preached in the jail for four years the first time I was here, and I would see the repeats. What are you doing back? It's way easier in here. That was their answer. This isn't that kind of jail. They've just spent a night in jail. They've just been threatened not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And yet the very first thing we find them doing after they have reported what has happened to their, their church is they're praying to God and they're speaking about the Christ that they're told not to speak about. And, and this is so great here because we don't find this church calling a meeting to figure out what their next move is going to be now that they've been threatened. This was not a vote to see what everyone thought they should do. They're not setting up a committee on how best to handle the council's threatenings. They're not pacing back and forth, wringing their hands, worrying. They're not in fear or or confusion. Instead, they immediately go to God in prayer. They are serving God, and so to God they must look. In fact, the, the Greek word for Lord is the connection between a master and his servant. The English word Lord, it shows up several hundred times in our New Testament. And this particular word is only used ten times. Five of those is used as Lord, five are used as masters. And and so this is the English, where we get our English word despot or despot, which means one who rules with absolute power and authority. So they are addressing God as their master. And they view themselves as bond slaves to their master. They are in humble subjection to God is what they're saying. It's the same that we read over there in 1 Timothy 2.21, being a vessel meet for the master's use. He can use that vessel as he sees fit. And that's what this is conveying here. And my point is, who else is a servant supposed to turn to for their direction and their guidance. They must turn to their master. Remaining in subjection to him because he rules with absolute authority. We need more of this understanding today. So I hope you're you're picking up what I'm putting down. Because today we have such a weak brand of Christianity that we just flippantly go before God. Like he's just our bud. He's not the big man upstairs. The big kahuna. It's God Almighty. He he is our master. He is our creator. And we are to be in subject to him. He bought us with a price. He owns the title to our life. And he can do with us as he sees fit when we understand that he is the master. And I'm I'm just owned by him. 
Not to mention, he can do a better job of running my life than I can. Now, before we begin to look at what they prayed, I want you to notice what they did not pray for. Peter and John just spent a night unjustly treated, but this church does not pray for vengeance. (laughs) They didn't pray for fire to fall and consume their enemies. Lord, wilt thou that we call fire from heaven as Elijah did? You know not what you say. They didn't even pray for an end of the persecution against them. And I think the typical response today in in prayer is for an end of the problem that is being faced. We, We often pray for removal in our prayers, but look at what they prayed here in verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. So they're not crying out for an end of the threatenings. They're seeking help during the threatenings. But rather what they're praying for is boldness through the threatenings. Right? They're praying for boldness to be able to preach the Word of God. They are asking for God to work mightily through them in the name of Jesus. The very one... They were told, don't speak in that name. To pray for boldness means they're asking God to give them the courage, the confidence to be outspoken, publicly outspoken. Let me put it in terms you'll better understand. It means to speak out even though it's not politically correct. It literally means to be frank is what it means. If you look up the strong, it says, all outspokenness. (laughs) Lord, give us the boldness. Give us the courage and the confidence to speak. They're not being ugly. They're not being nasty about it. They're not beating people over the head. But they're saying, look, I just want to be faithful. I want to be bold. And I want to to give people the Word of God. They want sinners to be reached. And so they're asking for God and His Word to be glorified. By lifting up their voices to pray, they are acknowledging their belief in the power of God and their faith and trust in God to hear and answer their prayer. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. They also recognize how they cannot go forward in their own strength, but they would need God's strength to endure the trials that they are facing. And they need God's strength to remain obedient to God's calling to go and preach the gospel to everywhere in the world. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength. Amen. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. In 2 Kings 19, you may remember we have the account of Rabshakeh, he's the mouthpiece for Sennacherib, the the king of Assyria, during Hezekiah's reign over Judah. And he he comes to Jerusalem with a letter to give to Hezekiah, and the whole intent is that they would put fear in the hearts of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judea. And we read this in 2 Kings 19.14, but by the way, the letter was saying things like, you know, hey, what happened to those people? Their God didn't help them. So don't think your God's going to help you any. 
So Hezekiah, he takes that letter, and in 2 Kings 19.14, it says, And Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. (laughs) I love that passage. He takes his problems and he brings them before the Lord. And and in essence, this is what this early church is doing. They are taking their their situation, the threatenings of the council, and they are are spreading this out before the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, you've you've got to show us what to do. It's interesting how we talk about prayer sometimes, isn't it? We say things like, well, just pray for me. Just pray for you. That's the best thing we can do for you. Well, uh, we act like the last resort, the, the, the only method that we have left is, well, pray for me. Or, you know, I'm just praying about it. Just praying about it. No, listen, we're, this is God. This is who we should turn to. It, God is not a last resort. He's the first thing, the first person that we ought to turn to. What kind of talk is that? Well, just pray for me. Prayer, listen, it's something that we ought to turn to immediately. James 5.16 teaches us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Jeremiah 33.3, Call unto me, God said, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Now let's take a look at their prayer here. They begin in verse 24 with their recognition of how great God is. Lord, Thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And I, I would tell you that in those times that you are purposefully setting aside a time, uh, time to pray. Alright, I'm not talking about when you're stepping out of the boat and you're sinking, Lord save me is fine. But I'm talking about those times when you are setting, uh, you're, you're making a, a concerted effort to get along with God in prayer, then I believe that a proper thing to do, a scriptural thing to do, is to begin your prayer this way. Jesus taught us to pray after this manner. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. So I would tell you, take some time to acknowledge and reflect upon the greatness of our God. We have so much to praise Him for. Like, I don't really know. Well, maybe you need to get in Christ and you'll have plenty to praise Him for. Amen. We have so much to praise Him for, it shouldn't be that difficult to start your prayer with how great God is. Begin your prayer by thanking God for who He is. Acknowledge His power and His ability. Thank Him for what He has done in your life. Just take some time to give unto Him the glory that is due unto His name. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15 Offer unto God thanksgiving. There's your thanksgiving message. Praise the Lord, it showed up. (laughs) Offer unto God thanksgiving. And pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee. And thou shalt glorify me. You know, if you've been delivered, you've got something to glorify God about. So they begin their prayer in our text by acknowledging God's power as their creator. And you can either bow down and pray before the living God who made you, or you can bow down and pray to a God you made. By acknowledging God 
as their creator, they are recognizing there isn't anything too hard for our God. Listen, if he could create this universe from nothing, your problems are not that hard for God. By the way, don't you love the term universe? It it, it proves the existence of God. Uni, one, verse, spoke. One spoke, universe, let there be. Anyway, I don't want to get off on that. I, I do, but I won't. Now, where did they get the idea that God created everything? From God's word. Everything we know about God, we know from his word. And, and, and so they, you understand what I mean, but they, they're getting this from God's word. And we see in verses, I say that to say, we see in verses 25 and 26 that they're still using God's word in their prayer. Look at these two verses. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They're referencing Psalm one or Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. They're, they're drawing from the Word of God in their prayer life. And while they don't use verse 3 in their reference here, I want to read it to you because I, it's kind of cool how it fits the context. What the heathen are saying in verse 3 of Psalm 2 is, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And, and so they, they recognize that this church, they recognize that what has come upon them is because of the heathen. They understand that while the, the heathen rage is manifested against believers, the heathen are ultimately standing against God and His Christ. God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And what is the intent of those who oppose Christ? Their desire is to break away from and cast away the bands and cords of Christ. I don't want Him to be my master. I don't want to be in subjection to Him. But they don't understand that our master's yoke is easy and His burden is light, that His commandments are not grievous. And so the council are being referred to here as the heathen, And they are refusing to be governed by God's revealed will. And men will try to defy God, but God will always prevail in the end. But what I want to emphasize from them citing God's Word in prayer is how God's Word better helps us to understand what is happening around us in the world. Therefore, God's Word ought to help guide our prayers as it did for this early church. Because sometimes as you get to learn the Word of God, you may discover, well, I've been praying amiss. That, that's not God's revealed will. This, you understand what I'm trying to say? And you get in the Word of God and you begin to realize, wait a minute, the heathen are raging. The people are imagining a vain thing. They're against God and against His Christ. And so I ought to expect this to be coming upon me as a believer. In addition to the Word of God guiding our prayers so that we don't ask amiss, knowing the Scriptures helps us call upon God based upon His exceeding great and precious promises that we heard from Brother Lydic when we kicked off our anniversary days. Psalm 119, verse 76. Let I pray thee thy merciful kindness be for my comfort according to thy word 
unto thy servant. God, you promised this mercy. And I'm calling you out on your word. And I don't mean in a bad way. I'm just saying, this is what your word says. Next in their prayer, we see they remember Jesus and his suffering in verses 27 and 28. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So notice the list here given in verse 27 of those who were coming against Jesus. Herod, who was a ruler in Judea. Pilate, who was a governor. The Gentiles, which were all the Romans and anybody who wasn't of the children of Israel. The people of Israel were all gathered together. So you have Herod and Pilate who were Gentile rulers. We know the council were rulers in Israel. And then we just have in general common people of the Gentiles and and Israel. And and I like this verse because it removes any attempt of anti-Semitism because the Gentiles are also to blame. But it also proves the children of Israel were not blameless because they were involved. And, And it's a very good verse because some are trying to figure out, well, who killed Jesus as if it's some kind of hard thing to figure out? Jesus willingly laid down His life. But in a sense, we are all guilty of the death of Jesus because He died for all of our sins. You say, well, I'm not in Christ. He still died for your sins. He died for the sin of the world. The payment's been made. All you got to do is receive it. But what we find that they set the, the remembrance of Jesus and His sufferings before them is that um, they're remembering how these people were so against Christ. Again, the heathen are raging against God's anointed. And they would have remembered what Jesus said in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They remembered how their Lord was tried, how he suffered, how he triumphed. And this brought them confidence because they were being as their Lord. They understood this fiery trial that was upon them was not some strange thing as Peter wrote. So as you pray in the midst of your trial, always bring to remembrance what our Lord endured. And if you'll do that, I believe it'll help you to endure. He did nothing wrong. And look at what all he went through. And in verse 28, they recognize the sovereignty of God. Hey, God's always in control, amen? God's never surprised. God's never on plan B. God's not on plan B ever. God knows exactly what He's doing at all times. And He doesn't have to call an audible ever. God's never going to be dethroned. And God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. In verses 28 and 29, we get the conclusion of their prayer. I've already discussed this to some extent. What verses did I say? That's not right. 30 and 29 and 30. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. So they just want to glorify God through the trials. Can I get a witness? Listen. Because what people are wanting today is they're wanting the trial to go away. Lord, take this trial away. I'm not saying you're wrong to pray that. But you ought to also be praying, Lord, May I glorify you through 
the trial. Because what's going to confound the world is that how can that person have so much peace knowing that they're terminal? By the way, we're all terminal. And so they want to glorify God through the trials. They want to see God's power work through them by the name of Christ. The very name they're not supposed to mention. So throughout their prayer, we see how they they recognize God as their master, that they were His humble servants. They recognize God as the Almighty Creator who can handle anything. They recognize the Scripture's guiding role in prayer. They remembered what Jesus suffered and endured to help them persevere. They remembered God is sovereign, and they desire to honor and glorify God. And, And finally tonight, we see the result of their prayer in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the Word of God with boldness. Isn't it amazing when God moves, there's no denying it? The place shook. There was, what's going on around here? Oh, it must have been a tremor. Mm-mm. God was at work. When God's at work here, we'll know it. But what we see is God answered their prayers. We'll see this more next time, but um, we'll get into this maybe a little bit more. But God answered their prayer, and I want you to understand this is the result of Spirit-filled praying. Do you hear what I'm saying? Spirit-filled praying. Not kneeling down on a Wednesday night, hey, how's it going? How was your work week? (laughs) Let's talk like we're praying. And then get up, say a couple words, and go out and fellowship in the foyer. I'm talking about getting a hold of God, being spirit-filled in your prayer. Amen. To where you hear the piano playing going, what? It's already been 25 minutes? We sing sweet hour of prayer, and I'm afraid that's collected for the whole month. Yeah, right. All right, I, 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 a preaching storm's coming on, and I'm trying to wind this thing down. So stop encouraging me, all right? <laughs> the place was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And I just want to give you a, a doctrinal point here as a side note. Some of these were the exact same believers that were filled with the Holy Ghost in chapter 2. Which I believe highlights the difference between being indwelt in the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit. A believer is always indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But they may not always be filled. Because the Bible teaches you can quench and you can grieve the Holy Spirit's influence in your life. Well, that's for another crowd. But... This verse ends with the exact same thing that they prayed for. Boldness to speak the Word of God. How about that? A church in action is primarily concerned about speaking the Word of God. And isn't it great that right here, that when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, we don't see them speaking in tongues like we did in chapter (laughs) 2? Did I just offend about half the people here? Hey, listen, there's people out there that you would think tongues are mentioned in every chapter of the book of Acts. They're only mentioned a handful of times at best in the entire Bible. And here they are filled with the Holy Ghost, and there's no mention of that. I think we got some Pentecostals among us, and I need to preach that, but um, I'll get with Brother Long afterwards. (laughs) So they want to speak the Word of God, which is important because people don't need our opinions. They don't need our philosophies. People need the Word of God. They don't need to hear from from you per se. You need to be the giver of the Word of God. 
And so we see how being in one accord affects a church's prayer meeting. That's what they have here. It leads to being spirit-filled and having the boldness necessary to fulfill the Great Commission, even in the face of opposition. So what I want to do in closing is I want you to take a step back in your mind's eye from our church. I want you to picture yourself as an outsider looking in. Or maybe better yet, try to view yourself as God looking down upon this church. And then ask yourself, is God pleased with our prayer life? Is God pleased with our prayer meetings? Can you sense tonight God would be saying, you need to pray more fervently? Maybe you could be more faithful just to pray. Are you in one accord with this body of believers in prayer? Let's pray.